And so for all intents and purposes, we leave this chapter with this impression in mind that Joseph is the favored son. Joseph is, he's got to be, he's got to be the son of the promise. And Judah, rotten Judah, conspiring with Ishmael, rotten Ishmael, just as God's people have always been opposed and found hostility by the sons of the serpent. We're left with this chapter. And as we go into chapter 38, the idea is even more reinforced. And this is why I read chapter 38. Because in chapter 38, we find Judah, the fallen son. We find Judah, the failure son, the fallen son, the forsaken son, the faithless son. I can keep on going with F's. Judah, chapter 38, presents Judah as a complete moral failure, a complete train wreck. I mean, first he, uh, it says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira, and there Judah saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite, and he goes into her and he has children by her. I can't say Judah fails in his choice of a wife because the text never says he marries her. It just says that he has children by her. But it's not the illegitimacy or the legitimacy of the marriage that the text is pointing out. But Judah was not... The, 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 the book of Genesis has made it clear in each of the preceding generations that the children of Abraham were not to have taken wives from the Canaanites. They were not to have done it. And for all the wickedness of his brothers... Chapter 38 highlights that Judah's not even walking in the ways of the other wicked brothers. He turns aside from his brothers to go find a Canaanite wife. And so, and then he has children for his son, his first son is named Ur, and he finds a Canaanite wife for him as well, a woman named Tamar. As we read through the text, the next focus of the text is on the wickedness of Judah's sons. In fact, they are so wicked that God literally puts them to death. Now, if you think about what we've seen in this family that we've been following, how wicked did these sons have to be? Like, we've had Reuben sleeping with his father's concubine. We've had Simeon and Levi massacring and, and deceiving and massacring an entire village. How wicked did these sons have to be that the Lord's like, yep, you guys crossed the line. Now, Ar, we don't know what he did. Onan, the second son, we actually do. So for Onan, so after Ar passed away, there was this custom of the day that if a, if a, if a, if a brother died without leaving any children, this is going to be weird because it's not our culture for sure, but the brother of the deceased would actually go into his brother's wife and have children, and those children would receive the inheritance of the brother. It's a way of keeping the brother's family line intact. Right? It seems strange to us, but that was their practice in the day. But Onan, what Onan did was he did not want his brother to have any and he didn't want his brother to have any children that could share in his inheritance he didn't want to give his brother's you know what do you call it estate any inhabitants and so it does say though he was more than willing to use tamar for sexual activity and so he would go into tamar his sister-in-law but, not, but he would intentionally do so in a way 
that would not fulfill that custom or that cultural duty. He would, in short, exploit Tamar. And God comes in, steps in, and says, this is a wicked, wicked, wicked thing. And God puts Onan to death. And so Judah steps in and says, look, when my last son grows up, I'll give him to you, Tamar. You stay in my, my house as a widow, and when, when, when uh, she grows up, or when he grows up, I'll, I'll give him to you as your husband. But Judah doesn't keep his word, and Tamar becomes increasingly agitated, desperate to bear children. Now, now we might find it difficult to understand the desperate situation that she was in, because we live in a different cultural time and place. But we can understand that Tamar was so desperate, she thought she had no other recourse she was going to be having no other children because Judah had lied to her. So she's not only been exploited, she's not only been sexually assaulted, she's now been lied to after she's put all her hopes into this family for decades, likely. And so she has no other, she's so desperate, what she does is she stands by the roadside and waits for Judah to come by with a veil over her face dressed as a temple prostitute. Now, in order to do that, she must have known that her father-in-law frequented those sorts of I don't know if that's called an establishment or what. But she had a good idea that when Judah walked by, he would see her and he would proposition her, and that's what he does. And she becomes pregnant. Actually, before she becomes pregnant, she asks Judah for payment, and Judah says, well, I have to go back and left my wallet at home, kind of. And she says, well, give me something as a pledge. So he gives her his staff, and there's, he gives her his stuff, and he says, I'll, I'll send somebody with payment later, and she's not going to stay around because she's not actually a temple prostitute, so she goes home, changes her clothes, goes back home, and there, she's not there to be found. Three months later, it's found that she's now pregnant, and Judah jumps to the assumption, obviously, that she's been immoral, and this child, or the children she's bearing, because she has twins, is a child of immorality, and he, uh, in his anger... And in his lack of grace, he threatens, bring her out so that we might burn her. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. Please, please tell me, who identify, who are these, the signet and the cord and the staff? And Judah identified him, them, and said, She's more righteous than I. She's more righteous than I, since I didn't give her to my son, Shalah, and he didn't know her again. Judah's hypocrisy is exposed. Tamar, who has suffered such humiliation at the hands of Judah's family, has now humiliated him. Judah is the fallen son. And that seems to be the conclusion. So if we're thin-slicing this, as Malcolm Gladwell talks about, right? if we're making our first impression about these two sons, it seems obvious to us. Joseph is the favored son. Judah is the fallen son. Yet, The chapter actually goes on and doesn't end there. It ends with the story of Tamar's twins' strange birth. And in Tamar's twins' strange birth, there's this weird story of how they're jostling for position as they're actually being birthed. Right? 
And it's kind of weird, it's curious, because generally when Moses gives us an account of this sort of sibling rivalry, it's because the siblings in question are part of that all-important chosen line to Messiah. But these twins are not born to Joseph, who we are given the impression is the chosen one. These twins are born to Judah and Tamar. And so we have an indicator here at the end of the story. This is something strange to us. At the end of these two introductory chapters to Joseph and Judah, that things may not be as they seem. And guess what? I am going to spoil the story for you. Sorry, spoiler alert. But I didn't want to have this to wait until we got any further. The promised plan of God will unfold, and sure enough, sure enough, sure enough, this has all been a setup. It's all been a setup. Because by the end of the book of Genesis, we find out that Judah, not Joseph, is actually the one chosen by God to be in that line of that great promised plan that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the end of the, the Genesis chapter 49, Joseph, uh, Jacob is prophesying over his sons, and he says, as, as, in the context of saying other things about Judah, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This, this phrase, until tribute comes from him, there's a whole bunch of different ways people translate it. Um, but here's the point. One of my commentaries put it this way, just in summary. It says, whichever, you can go and you can read multiple interpretations of what this means, until tribute comes to him. Whichever of these interpretations is adopted, all at least agree that this line is predicting the rise of the Davidic monarchy, the establishment of the Israelite empire, if not even the coming of a greater David. And if the primary reference is to David, traditional Jewish and Christian exegetes would agree that, like other Davidic promises, this has greater fulfillment in the Messiah. All that to say what the New Testament says, the author of Hebrews says it very succinctly, it's evident that our Lord Jesus was descended not from Joseph, not from the favored son, but from Judah, from the fallen son. And as we come into these first two chapters of the story of Joseph, we're left with, like, this is, this is something to wrestle through, isn't it? The fallen son is the chosen son, not the favored son. What? And we're going we're to see how this unfolds as we go through the storyline of Joseph. But I want to I leave you with kind of three thoughts here. To kind of just pause here until we go further into the storyline next week. But three thoughts from this. From this just, just kind of mind-blowing thought that the fallen son is the chosen son, not the favored son. The first thought is this. God's choice in election defies our limited perspective. This is where, I, this is where the, the sermon starts. Point one. God's... <laughs> Took all that time, point one. Uh, God's choice in election defies our limited perspective. I, I actually believe God inspired Moses to set us up and to write the story in this way so that we actually think Joseph is going to be the chosen son, he's the favored son, and we are shocked by Judah. Precisely because God is highlighting for us how limited our perspective is when it comes to God's choice in election. We read the two chapters and we think we have God's ways figured out. 
But God sees the big picture and acts accordingly to his inexhaustible knowledge of all things past, present, and future. We have no idea of what God is doing behind the scenes in the lives of those around us. We have no idea. Right now, right now, do this for me, okay? Right now, think of someone in your life. Think of a colleague at work. Think of a neighbor. Think of a classmate. Just have somebody in your mind. It can be a family member. It can be somebody. Think of someone. You all got one? Raise your hand when you got somebody in your mind. Okay. Now, what do you actually know about how God is working in their lives? What do you actually know about how God is going to work in their lives over the next year? What do you actually know about how God is going to work in their lives over the next five years? I met a guy last night. I, I first met this guy last year. He's part of a, a training session that I had gone through. Uh, we met with him weekly last year, and on, on week three, um, this guy just poured his heart out. And he shared about how his marriage was over and how it had been over for a while. He poured his heart out and he just shared, this is, it's done. It's done. He had no hope. So we meet him last night. And he goes, 180 degree difference. 180 degree difference. My wife and I, she, she's supportive. We, our relationship has been completely reconciled. 180 degree difference. What happened? <laughs> he started seeking after the Lord. He goes, I don't actually know. I don't know what happened to her. It just happened. I started seeking after the Lord, had people pray. We were praying. Had people telling me, yelling at me, admonishing me. I don't know, but I don't take any credit for it. God did it. A year ago, he would have had no idea. He had given up complete hope. The limited perspective. We, we, we see a glimpse of what God is doing in people's lives. God has inexhaustible knowledge of what he is doing in people's lives. And his choice, for example, in election, we, we tend to think, oh, those people will never, that, that person will never be open to the gospel. You do not know that. I do not know that. And so, and also, God's grace in election defies our premature judgments. We make snap judgments about people, about whether or not they will be receptive to hear this greatest news that we have, this gospel of peace, that though we are alienated from God because of an account of our sin, God has provided a way that we might come to shalom with him, to peace with him, to have relationship restored, to have reconciliation granted, to have forgiveness offered in the gospel of Christ. And, and we make snap judgments. Judah's not worthy of God's grace. No, he's not. And neither was Jacob. And neither was Isaac, and neither was Abraham, and neither are you, and neither am I. 
and neither is your neighbor, and neither is your boss, and neither is your classmate. None of us are worthy of God's grace. None of us can earn a relationship of approval from our God. In fact, by what we have done, we have merited on our behalf only God's wrath. And yet that is why grace is grace. And that is why God's grace, when he shows his grace to these people who we've already written off, why they can be trophies of his grace. As Paul says, grace was shown to me because, not because I was a good person, but because I was the least and the worst of sinners. God's grace appeared to me. And here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Yet we so often write people off. We go to school and we go to work and we go into our neighborhoods, we go into our family, and they're never going to believe in the gospel. They seem to be so in love with their sin. Well, so were we. Can we pray that our church and the churches of our city would be filled with people who we in our premature judgment had written off only to be shocked by the all-surpassing and all-surprising power of God's grace? Like this week, could you go into your workplace and actually look around your workplace or your school or your classroom and go, there are people here who God will surprise me and indeed shock me when they bow their knee to Christ, when they receive that offer of forgiveness in the gospel, that I want to be shocked when I go to work. I want to be shocked when I go to school. I want to see God's grace being poured out upon my classmates and my friends. Do you believe that it could be? Like, are you ready to go in and just say, you know what, God, what I am, my job is to be a vessel to proclaim this good news? And as I go and be a vessel and proclaim the good news, I believe you, God. That your grace is all surpassing and your grace is all surprising. See, God's plan and election shocks our confined imaginations. Like we go through our life with God so much in our little box of what He of who He is and what we believe He can do. We have really, really limited imaginations of what God actually could be doing in and through and among us. The reality is, although that God chose Judah to be the son of the promise in regards to the line of the Messiah, God actually does also use Joseph to save the other sons and to bless the surrounding nations and to carry out his plan for the nation of Israel. And it's so crazy, it blows my mind. Judah and Tamar, and ultimately Jesus, they need Joseph to be the savior of their brothers, and that's how Joseph functions in the book of Genesis. Judah's going to be saved, his life's going to be saved by sending Joseph as a slave down to Egypt, and, and Joseph rising up. And Joseph needs Judah for eternal deliverance, because Joseph is as a sinner, is in need of a Messiah as anyone else. And that boggles and blows my mind, how God's providence and how his plan 
works through these lives of Judah and Joseph in order to be this amazing picture of God's grace and of God's plan. And that's, it's awesome, man. It's awesome. Can you just agree that our perspective is so limited? That our judgments are so premature? And that our imaginations are so confined? That, that God can be doing so far greater more than we could ever ask or could ever imagine? through his power, through his plan, and through his grace. Man, if you're here today, you don't yet know Jesus. I, I, I honestly appeal to you and invite you to understand this. You, you are a creature. You are made in the image of the God who created you. And you are alienated from him because of your sin. But he has, he has, he has made provision for you by sending his son, Jesus Christ. He is offering to you relationship with him, restoration of relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And when you know him, he is going to suddenly like broaden your perspective and he's going to suddenly rebuke your judgmental spirit and he will suddenly now give you a new imagination for what he can do because he is far greater than anything you have known before. And if that's you today, I pray today you would come and submit your life, bow your knee before Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I need a Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Forgive me of my sins and come into my life. And Christian, if you're here today, I, my challenge for you is to lift your eyes up to our great and glorious God and begin believing again in what he can do. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. You are a God who who defies our limited perspective. You're a God who goes beyond. We are so judgmental. You say, we're not judge anything until the final judgment because we don't know, Lord, how you're working in people's lives. We think we do. And Lord, how you are the God who blows away our imagination. We think we're creative, God, but you are the, the, the creator. And God, forgive us and humble us and rebuke us and encourage us, Lord, Help us to dream again. Help us, to, help us to, to see, see what you're doing. Help us to actually believe, God, that you are stronger and your grace is far surpassing than the hard hearts of our neighbors and friends. Lord, your, your word is amazing and I'm humbled before it every week. God, you are amazing. We humble ourselves before you. God, give us a glimpse and a taste of your glory. Fill us with your spirit. Holy Spirit, as we go into the, the time of response of this worship service, Holy Spirit, please fill us with, with your word. Fill us with your truth. Holy Spirit, lift up the eyes of our heart to you that we might see the grandeur of your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to go into a time of response. Lift up your eyes to him. Open up. We pray the spirit may open up the eyes of your heart that you might see him and that you might sing of him. Sing out, sing out, stand up if you need to, raise your hands if you need to, sing out, because we serve a great and glorious God. During the time that we're singing, about halfway through, I'll be starting to pass the elements around for the Lord's Supper. It's a cracker, it's a cup. It, signifi it signifies to us the body and the blood of our Lord. If you're here today, if you're not yet a Christian or you haven't yet been baptized, as a Christian, please help us by passing 
the tray along. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll turn over the, to you guys. Cool. Let's sing of God's goodness. His higher ways than ours and of his sovereignty over everything, whether it's good or bad, he knows what's happening. to understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I only know at his right hand stands one who is my Savior. I take him at his word and deed. Christ died to save me this side. 